Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Dr. Andrew Silverman is my guest, and he stays with us for the full two hours. He's the author of A Burst of Conscious Light, Near-Death Experiences, The Shroud of Turin, and The Limitless Potential of Humanity. Dr. Silverman provides evidence that human consciousness can never be reproduced and exposes the perils of artificial intelligence. He explains how consciousness transcends the brain and body through quantum theory and accounts of consciousness in the clinically dead. And he shares scientific evidence of how the image on the Shroud of Turin was produced and connects these findings to evidence concerning near-death experiences. Dr. Silverman is a medical doctor with a background in physics, and for over 30 years he's been conducting research on the mind-matter continuum, near-death experiences, and the Shroud. Dr. Andrew Silverman, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. My pleasure. I'd like to begin by discussing what it means to be human. And you cite in the book a recent study dealing with artificial intelligence and replicating the workings of the human brain. The study was called Whole Brain Emulation, a Roadmap. Tell me a little bit about that study. What were they trying to do? Well, they were looking into the possibility of whether a human mind could be emulated by artificial intelligence. Now, you see, this is uh, one of the main themes in my book, is whether such a thing is possible, and if not, why not, and what are the implications for our species if that is what people are aiming towards. Now, where Oxford University and Cambridge University, both in, in England, are, are relevant in this, is that in the Oxford University, there's the Future of Humanity Institute, and in Cambridge University, the, Cambridge, the Center for the Study of Existential Risk, which are both looking into the what might be possible threats to human existence. And what they what they came out with is that although, of course, there are dangers from climate change, from nuclear war or uh, through uh, germ warfare, so many things that could cause human annihilation, one of the most likely threats that they feel is likely to cause the extinction of the human race is unanticipated consequences of technology. And amongst these is the dangers of artificial intelligence. You see, uh, when you're programming a, a computer, a machine, a robot, to uh, it could be done with the best intentions, but you're programming it to protect people. And you say, for example, prevent human suffering. Well, what many scholars have said is that a uh, machine trying to think just simply logically without any sense of conscience or meaning or, or purpose, deeper purpose, if it's going to prevent human suffering, the simplest way to ensure that there's never any human suffering is to wipe out the human race. So there are, are all sorts of dangers through, for example, these autonomous weapons and so on uh, that uh, that could lead to very serious danger for mankind. And the particular one that I was addressing in uh, in the book in that part about the uploading is the question of whether it's even possible to upload the human mind. You see, I argue in the book that we are not made 
of information, that a mind is something that can perceive information, which is very different from being just a string of ones and zeros, if you like. Right. A tape recorder can receive information, but the tape recorder is not conscious uh, other than the fact that there are, you know, it's recording vibrations, but it's not, there's no awareness there. Exactly right. You've put it very well. And in fact, there was a book written by a very learned scholar from Oxford University in 1989 called The Emperor's New Mind that was talking about this, you know, like with the emperor's new new suit, everyone says it's wonderful, but actually he hasn't got a suit. And this is the way that many people think that it is with artificial intelligence, that people haven't actually considered properly whether there's actually a mind there. And as you quite rightly say, a tape recorder or a book can can contain information, but they can never be conscious. And so I, I believe it's madness to think that we could in some way upload our minds into a machine and that machine would then be us, that we would be conscious in that machine. And the danger is that people believing that that they can continue in machines in that way will think, oh, we don't need these fragile, uh, puny biological humans anymore because they last for a certain number of decades and then they're gone. But we can make these rep- self-replicating robots and put upload our minds into them and then that's us but it's not us you see and then we we've got the human beings would have nowhere to be born because you can't be born to a machine right and the transhumanist movement people like ray kurzweil talk about achieving immortality by sort of re-sleeving our consciousness uploading it as you say so digital immortality but as you point out in a burst of conscious light they're misguided because it's all predicated on a total misunderstanding of what consciousness is. So what is consciousness? What is your definition and and where do you think it resides? That's such a wonderful question. And as I address this question in the book, how does one define consciousness? Because whenever one gives a, a definition of anything, it's always done relatively to to something else. So, for example, if you're describing uh, what the about the color blue or so, or something like that, you will refer people to say, "Oh, it looks like the sky." Well, if you've never seen the sky or you don't know what that looks like, then how do you know what what blue is? So, our usual definitions are, are based on material sensory experience, and we're always they're always related to the contents of our perception. Uh, what we see, what we hear, and what we feel and smell and taste and so on. Uh, and that's what we describe when we're defining something, whereas consciousness is something totally different to that. Consciousness is the room, the space, if you like, in which those experiences, those perceptions happen. And so it's not possible to define it in terms of the contents of our perception. And yet, although we can't define what it is, Everyone who is conscious knows what it is because they they are it. They are consciousness. They are awareness. Every human being is awareness and they know what it is to be aware. But you can't put a, a definition of that in machine code, if you like, for the very simple reason that a machine can't experience can't experience anything because it can never be conscious. So in terms of uh, defining what consciousness is, one can only refer the the listener, the reader, or any human being to look at their own experience and they see within their experience all of the contents and then look back and say, 
those contents exist within my my perception so my perception is bigger than those contents a good friend of mine once got me to 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 look up at the the night sky and see all the 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 hundreds of billions of stars that you can see there that are many billions of light years away some of them and all the galaxies and so on and it's amazing to think that all of those things that you're seeing all exist within your mind's eye so your mind is bigger than all of that it's bigger than the sky it's bigger than the universe that is amazing to think about in a burst of conscious light you address three seemingly disparate subjects the first is quantum mechanics and the role of consciousness of the observer the second is the near-death experience and the third is the image on the Shroud of Turin. And you demonstrate how all three of these subjects, while seemingly disparate areas, are in fact related and ultimately demonstrate the limitless potential of humanity. So let's start with the Shroud. This is something I've talked about many, many times, but there may be some out there still not very familiar with this remarkable piece of woven linen. So just give a brief description of what this Shroud of Turin is all about, what it looks like, and and what image is on the Shroud. Certainly. Well, it's a 14-foot by 4-foot roughly length of, of linen cloth, which has on it several markings, the most significant of which are... Uh, human blood stains which have been forensically studied and been found to be human blood and it tells uh, the the pattern of the stains and the and the serum around them tells a, a story of that can be read by a, a forensic pathologist looking at the cloth and it's been discovered that this cloth once wrapped the recently deceased body of a man who had been who had been tortured he had been whipped by two two assailants and he had had a cap of sharp objects placed upon his head uh, such as thorns may have been for example and he had been crucified he'd been crucified through the the feet and also interestingly through the wrists now this is important because if you you look at for example medieval art and so on it's always depicted that the that the nails went through the hands but we know they must have gone through the wrists and we have known this for for just over about 100 years only uh, after this was studied by by anatomists and, it, and pathologists and it was found that the hands wouldn't have been able to take the weight of the body so a forger if if, if it's people want to have the, the theory that this was made by a medieval forger he would actually have to have ripped and crucified someone and uh, crucified them through the through the wrist first to just to make the just to make the blood stains and they nobody in in those times even knew that the crucifixion was through the wrists now the even more important on there is a, there's a very faint sepia-toned image of a of a man. Now, when, when we're talking about the shroud, I should just get one thing out of the way because some people may have heard that in around 30 years ago there was a report that was published in a very respected journal called Nature, uh, which purported to show through radiocarbon dating that the that the shroud was was medieval in origin. Now, I was a I was a student 
at the at the time that that came out and I was doing a science degree as during my uh, medical degree and I so I used to read nature each week so I was actually saw this this uh, journal when it came out and something interested me in the the table of of the actual raw data they was a discrepancy because the different labs had dated the the small samples that were taken from the same patch of cloth and they had come out with statistically different ages for them that would be were beyond what you would expect from chance so there seemed to be some variation in apparent age of the cloth even within the tiny sample that was studied and since then there was some great work done by uh, a couple in the states called Sue Benford and, and Joe Marino who who discovered that the corner of the the cloth that was taken for carbon dating had been one of the most damaged through through the history of the shroud and it had actually been repaired it had been there had been a reweave done incorporating so that the the sample that was sent to the radiocarbon labs was the majority of the of the of the fibers in that were actually much more modern than the, the shroud itself it wasn't representative of the of the whole cloth now there was a, a scientist at Los Alamos called Raymond Rogers who um when he first heard about the research of Benford and Marino he said he he was actually one of the original team of scientists who had researched the shroud so he still had some samples left from near the radiocarbon area and from elsewhere on the cloth and so his first reaction to hearing what they were saying was anger almost if you like saying um I've, well i've got the material to prove these people wrong in five minutes and what he actually did was he tested parts of the the sample from near the carbon dating area and from elsewhere on the shroud and he said i set out to prove them wrong i've actually ended up proving them right and he he wrote up a, a, a paper in a respected peer-reviewed journal called thermochemica acta about his chemical findings that the sample that was taken for radiocarbon dating was not representative of the rest of the cloth and you know even the one the current uh, lead researcher of the Oxford radiocarbon dating unit who was he was a junior researcher at the time of the dating and and I believe now uh, runs the the lab he says that despite what the radiocarbon seem to show that much more research needs to to be done on this what he called this intriguing cloth because there's so much other evidence that that suggests it may have been much older now my lovely bride was an archaeologist Mm -hmm. and one of the things she's always said is if you have a carbon dating that's out of line with all the rest of the evidence you don't throw out the rest of the evidence you retest the the carbon dating indeed and if you look at the linen i mean the the weave of the linen is particular to first century jerusalem Jerusalem, you know, you've talked about how the image on the shroud mirrors in such detail the gospel account of the crucifixion, right down to the fact that his leg wasn't broken, but the Roman soldiers would break a crucifixion victim's legs in order to hasten death. Well, Jesus was already dead, so they didn't need to break his leg. The other interesting thing is you were mentioning the nails did not go through the palm, they went through the wrists. Mm-hmm. And the thumbs on the image are not visible because they're tucked under. Talk to me about the significance of that. Well, for many years, many people have said that this may have been because the nail actually went through the median nerve, which goes 
through the hand and, and whether that may have caused the thumb position to be different. I actually through various other reasons and and after having heard a paper that was presented by an American physician called uh, Dr. Gilbert Lavoie I actually believe that the that the man of the shroud at the that there were two thing two events here one was the the formation of the blood stains which happened by a very simple process uh, from basically a, a, a dead body laid flat on its back and with the the shroud uh, wrapped around it so he was laying on his back on the on one aspect of the cloth and then it was folded over the top of his head and and down over the rest of him and then the the stains formed but we just before i i i sorry i digressed onto the the topic of the carbon dating i was about to talk about the the actual image of the man on the cloth so if i may talk a little bit more about that to yes, put this in yes. context it's Basically, a very faint sepia-toned image that you can just make out of the front and the back of the man, which corresponds roughly to, in most parts, to to the bloodstains. And I'll come back to that why it doesn't correspond completely to them in a moment. Now, for hundreds of years, it was thought that it was just a faint image until the photography was developed in the 19th century and somebody called Secondo Pia took a, a photograph of the shroud and when he looked at his photographic negative plate as it obviously this was a long time before digital photos one for your younger listeners in in those <laughs> in those days one had to take a negative first which was all the tones are, are reversed so everything that's bright will look dark and everything that's dark will look bright on a negative so he saw the photographic negative plate and it said that he nearly dropped it in shock because the photographic negative if you look at a photographic negative of the shroud and the images in my book kindly reproduced by permission from Barry Schwartz you can see that the photographic negative it looks like a, a photograph a positive because the, yeah a positive because the actual image itself is like a photographic negative. In that other words, the image on the shroud is a negative, and when he took a picture of it, yes. you know, two pe- people who remember their math, two negatives equal a positive. So he was Indeed. that the image on the shroud is a negative. Would you describe it as an X-ray? Uh, I, I wouldn't personally describe it as an X-ray, but it has certain properties that that are similar to to a photographic negative. I would just put it like that: that right. there's a re- reversing of uh, uh, of light and dark. And again, why would a, a forger? do that some people say well the forger um the, the uh so-called forger was um actually taking a, a photograph using a camera obscura well um again going back to uh i mentioned barry schwartz earlier he he's a professional photographer and he um was part of the the team of scientists that went in 1978 to to study the shroud he wrote a paper on on this which you can find on on his website shroud.com uh, in which he looks at this hypothesis could the shroud have been a a photograph well 
because people say, oh, well, there were the raw materials were, were there, uh, even in medieval times to make a photograph. But he points out the raw materials were there to, to make microwave ovens and <laughs> nuclear bombs as well. It doesn't mean that they actually made them. And why is the first recorded photograph in the 19th century if there was some amazing person who was able to develop that technology and just did it once just for the just for the shroud image and and he, they this this forger would have had to to crucify someone as well to to get the forensic evidence but the the key thing it seems to me though is that as well as the photographic negative properties it was discovered by dr john jackson who was the sort of founder of of the Sturp team, the team of scientists who went there in 1978, he discovered using some technology that was available even in the 1970s called an image intensifier, which basically looks for distance information from an image, and it had been used for studying x-rays and and so on. Dr. Silverman, I have to jump in because we're going to take a time out, but we'll come back to this because I know where you're going with this distance coding that's contained in the image, and this is a real shocker. So not only is it a negative image on the shroud, we'll find out what else the information on that shroud reveals. Dr. Andrew Silverman, the author of A Burst of Conscious Light, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Have you subscribed to my free monthly newsletter, The Inner Sanctum? You can get yours delivered to your email inbox every month. All you need to do is go to my website, strangeplanet.ca, and register your name and email address. Do it right now, and you'll receive the next issue in March. Once you register, you'll also be automatically entered into the monthly draw for free Strange Planet merchandise like t-shirts, hoodies, sweatshirts, mugs, socks, phone cases, tote bags, and more. Again, to register, go to strangeplanet.ca. And we are back with Dr. Andrew Silverman, and his new book is called A Burst of Conscious Light, Near-Death Experiences, The Shroud of Turin, and the Limitless Potential of Humanity. So, we were talking about this uh, remarkable piece of linen cloth, the most studied artifact, perhaps, in history. And uh, this group called STIRP were examining it, and they were using some equipment developed by NASA, and they discovered, I think you described it as distance coding in there, which tells us what? Yes, actually, I understand that although some of the scientists there had worked with NASA and Jet Propulsion Laboratory and so on, the actual image intensifier, I don't think, was actually developed by NASA. But but basically, what they discovered was that if you take an ordinary photograph and you put it through an image intensifier, then what you see is a random set of peaks and troughs that don't correspond to the actual three-dimensional relief shape of, say, a, a human face or a human form. But when you do the same thing to the shroud image, then it comes out in relief at you and you see that basically the intensity of the image is dependent on how close the shroud was to the body that was wrapped within it, which is not what you would expect to find if, for example, someone had been doing a camera obscura technique and it was which would be based on light reflected from the body. The amazing conclusion, which is very difficult to get away from, is that it appears that the image was formed by something that emanated from the body of the man itself. 
Now, the, the sepia discoloration of the surface fibrils is a very much a surface phenomenon. It's one five thousandth of a millimeter in thickness. Which, so very, which very rules out paint because paint would yes. soak into the lower fibrils. Exactly right, yes. And um, so uh, the actual nature of it, when you study it chemically, it's not anything that's been added to the cloth, but it's actually an what's called oxidation and dehydration of these surface fibrils, very similar to how paper, you know, old books uh, turn yellowish, especially when they're exposed to sunlight. And I believe this might have been one of the, the things that got people thinking and, and led to a team of scientists at the Atomic Energy Institute in, in Italy, in Frascati, led by Dr. Paolo Di Lazzaro. They then said, okay, well, let's see. Since the change in the surface fibrils of the cloth is similar to what happens uh, when paper is exposed to sunlight, uh, then they actually tried exposing linen to short, intense bursts of very high intensity, very short duration bursts of ultraviolet laser. And they found that, that actually at a, a certain uh, level of the, the laser for a certain very short duration, you could replicate similar at a microscopic level, similar changes to the uh, to the surface fibrils of a linen cloth that made similar changes to what we see on the shroud. Now, now okay, if I could just jump in, if I could just sure. jump in, uh, Dr. Silverman, just so for people uh, to understand here, this distance coding basically it means that the image on the shroud, yes, you will, and we'll come back to the the light emanating from the body itself, but basically what it, what you're telling us is that it's a three dimensional image on the shroud. Now, how do you? How could a how could a forger do that? Yes, and and why would they bother to to do it, even if they knew how to do it? If the technology to discover what they had done would only become available six hundred years later for for us to realize that they that they had, that they had achieved this. Right. So we yes. have a negative image, a three dimensional image. So this forger, let's assume, had to have you know that ability. Uh, keep in mind, if you look at medieval paintings, they don't even understand perspective back then. Mm. So then we have someone with an incredible knowledge of physiology, uh, who has an incredible knowledge of botany. You mentioned, uh, I believe, pollen samples that were a- around the head, which would correspond to uh, the crown of thorns. Uh, uh, so just an incredible, you know, uh, this person would have had to have have been ten times, a hundred times, a thousand times smarter than Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, okay, yes. so let's get back to this. So t- in order to replicate this, they were able to use uh, use a laser. And I think that the, the figure you quote in the book is 34,000 billion watts of energy. Is that correct? Of, uh, of power, actually. Ah. What's it, because So uh, watts are relate to the rate of transfer of energy. Of course, if it had been a huge amount of energy that formed the image, then that would have vaporized the cloth and probably the tomb and, and everything that was around it. So, But it's, it's power relates to the rate of transfer of energy, and that's why with the uh, experiments with the ultraviolet laser, it's very, very short duration, tiny fractions of much less than one millionth of a second even Um, and and so within that short duration it's like a sudden 
burst of, of, of ultraviolet light. But, but they're not suggesting that it could have been done technologically because we couldn't do it technologically now, even with 21st century science. We wouldn't be able to, to produce a whole image of, right. a, of a human body. They're can, just making little dots. Can you, can you put this in, in perspective for us? For like 34,000 billion watts, um, I mean, how much does a nuclear plant produce or a bomb? It's, a nuclear it's less bomb. than that. Yeah, and, and well, I'm not sure. Nuclear bomb. That's that may be um, probably uh, up there with it. But uh, but of course, in a nuclear power plant, they're trying to avoid there being a, a, a runaway chain reaction, um, and the actual power output of those is is less than that. So. Um, Yes, it's less than the, the 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 power output of a nuclear plant is less than the power output that would have that would have formed the image on the shroud. If indeed it did form, as I believe the evidence shows, looking at the the peer-reviewed work that has been done by these scientists in in, in Frascati at the Atomic Energy Institute, then you know there's no way that we'd be able to to do this technologically even today, let alone sort of in you know the 13th or 14th century and is would there be any trace of that radiation still on the if we knew what to look for on the shroud or within the tomb which is supposedly the 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 church of the holy sepulcher where the the tomb is believed to have been located would there be any radiation there still um if it had been a burst of ultraviolet light that wouldn't necessarily in fact it wouldn't really leave any radiation effect because it is once it's as soon as it's formed and it's uh, that ultraviolet light that changes the cloth is absorbed by the cloth and the energy from it is makes a chemical change happen then then it's no longer there if you like it so there wouldn't necessarily be a physical uh, thing that you would be able to measure but the the shroud image itself may be the the only physical evidence that we definitely have of this event. So a sudden burst of ultraviolet light, 34,000 billion watts of, uh, of energy from a dead body. Mm. That's what we're, we're left with, essentially. Yes, and the interesting thing is, again, uh, as I realized after attending the presentation, as I said, Dr. Gilbert Levoy presented at the same conference where I presented actually at the Atomic Energy Institute in 2010, and he pointed out something that I, I have to confess I'd never occurred to me before, but if you actually look at the image on the shroud, you see that the image of the back of the body, there's no flattening of the buttocks or the calves and the hair is is not hanging down behind the body as you would expect if the man had been laying flat it looks as though it's actually hanging down on his on his shoulders now what this suggests is that at the moment that the shroud that when the blood stains formed the body was was wrapped in the in the shroud and was was laying flat on on its back but then somehow something happened that meant that the body became vertical and not vertical as in standing because if you look at the feet they're not in a standing position vertical and suspended in the air and at that moment 
there was this sudden burst of, of probable, uh, probably a burst of ultraviolet light, we think, from looking at the evidence. Unbelievable. Which, We've got to break away again. But So again, a negative image, a three-dimensional image, and an image that indicates it was suspended uh, vertically in midair when this remarkable burst of energy took place. Back with more of my conversation with Dr. Andrew Silverman, the author of A Burst of Conscious Light, right after this. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. A burst of conscious light near death experiences the Shroud of Turin and the Limitless Potential of Humanity is the book Dr. Andrew Silverman joins us on the line from Great Britain. We were talking about the, the image on the Shroud and how it appears the, the, the image was transferred to the linen while the body was levitating, essentially, vertically yes. in, in, mm. in midair. Yeah. Did and you want to... fascinating f- yeah. thing oh. is that, that there's so much evidence, I, I haven't mentioned it yet, but there is so much evidence that points to the man whom the shroud wrapped having been the historical Jesus of Nazareth, because for several reasons there was the, uh, the pollen was, uh, shows evidence of it having been around the environs of Jerusalem in March or April. It was, he was, the man was a victim of Roman crucifixion who uniquely Jesus had the, was said to have had the cap of thorns and that you mentioned about the lack of broken limbs. Uh, but, but also the fact that the body hadn't putrefied, that, that he had been able to be buried quickly and in a, a manner according to the traditional Jewish burial methods meant that that dates the the man's death somewhere between the AD or CE 6 and 66 and that there's various reasons for that to do with the, the politics of what was going on in Judea at that time which I which I go into in the book and uh, so it does look like it was he that he was the man uh, whose image we see on the on the cloth and the the fascinating thing is that these two things that we're talking about one of the that when we now look at the, this cloth carefully using modern 20th and 21st century science we see that it appears that there was a sudden burst of light from this man and also it appears that when that happened he was levitating now when you look at the reports of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. There was, for example, the walking on the water. There was the time that he was seen to rise above the ground. And when he was seen, while he was still alive, to be shining like, like the sun, it's described. Now, it's fascinating that, again, if it had been a forger, he wouldn't know that that that, that this would be able to be derived from looking at the cloth now, and and or that we would have been able to... But it's fascinating that... that these similar things happened to after he had died that also tie in to the same the same individual. And right. in the book, I explain how such a thing might have been possible. And we will get to that. But so there are three sort of paths in terms of trying to understand how that image got on the shroud. And as you point out, the, the materialists or the empiricists would say, well, we can explain this through... Uh, physical and chemical process. Uh, the, the religious, uh, would say, well, this was a miracle. This is something supernatural. We can't possibly, uh, understand it in terms of science. But you have a, you, you're proposing a third way. 
absolutely right um, because my point is that the term supernatural is often used to refer to either extrasensory perception or mind over matter but as I point out in the book you can make a very simple case that I believe a child can understand that actually all if you read it you'll, you'll see what I mean or if the readers if the listeners read it all perception is not from a sense, just like a camera has similar to an eye, but the camera doesn't experience seeing anything, and yet we do. So it's not the brain that sees, it's the mind that sees, which is beyond the sense. And if we have free will, then that means our will is is dis- deciding what our bodies do when we make a decision and we act upon that decision, and that's mind over matter. So if extrasensory perception and mind over matter are part of our everyday experience, and there are some scientists who I allude to their work in the book, some leading uh, quantum physicists who point out that that free will is real and that there, there's evidence for it being real. If that's the case, then mind over matter is totally natural. So we don't need to have such a word even as supernatural. Right, right. Uh, we're coming up on a, on a break again here in just about a, a minute. Um, so we'll begin the conversation on this next point and then continue after the break. But... Uh, you talk about you know the natural world and 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 um, how we have to understand where the mind fits into the natural world, uh, and and yet you point out this this fascinating paradox uh, when we're trying to understand the role of the mind or the observer in the natural world. Let's talk a little bit about you know the empirical view of the world, which doesn't allow for the mind. Yes, well. Basically, this is something that Erwin Schrödinger, one of the founders of quantum theory, pointed out, that the empirical model of a way of looking at, at the world, if you, if you do that, basically you're describing your experiences, the content of your experience, and you're removing from the discussion that which can perceive it. And so because you've done that by definition, as it were, then in the empirical view of the world, there is no mind. And yet we we know through our constant experience all the time that that there is one. And so there is a sort of contradiction that Schrodinger pointed out in the empirical view of the world, which is the reason why some uh, people believe, some people who follow what I would call not science but scientism, that would say that any notion of there being a mind that can influence a matter is dualism, but they are the ones that have divided the mind away from the physical world by seeing the physical world as only consisting of the contents of our perception and forgetting that the perceiver exists. Right. They, they divide the natural world into two parts, the observed mm. and the observer. That's implicit to the empirical worldview, and yet at the same time, they deny the existence of the observer. We'll uh, take a yeah. quick time out and uh, come back with our conversation on near-death experiences, the Shroud of Turn, and the limitless potential of humanity, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Dr. Andrew Silverman is with us for the full two hours. I want to talk about mind and matter. And again, Mm. the the empiricist would say that since the mind is the product of the brain, and you describe it as, you know, this gelatin lump or gelatinous lump, that's what the brain is essentially. and, And the empiricist would believe that that is the sum total, you know, that's the mind. Uh, 
And since the brain is physical matter, the mind is influenced by matter and not the other way around. So talk to me about how the mind, in fact, does influence matter. Indeed. Well, this was something that as soon as quantum theory was developed, it became apparent that consciousness has to be fundamental to even to the existence of matter, that rather than mind being a product of matter, it's amazingly, the truth is, it's the reverse. Matter is the product of mind. And two leading quantum physicists and Nobel laureates, Erwin Schrödinger and Max Planck, were both interviewed by a reporter, I believe his name was was Sullivan, in uh, the 1930s by a, a leading British newspaper called The Observer. And each of them went on the record to say when they were asked about consciousness that they believe consciousness is fundamental. It's not a product of matter and not a product of anything else. It is the basically part of the fundamental nature, the, the, the beginning and the nature of existence itself. Now, in fact, Eugene Wigner made the point that, in fact, there's nothing that we know of in science where an influence is only one way. If, if A influence, if A is able to influence B, then B must be able to influence A. And so he actually put in his, in his book, uh, about his reflections on, on philosophy and science and so on, that, that he believed that mind over matter is real. And also there's a professor of, at the University of Stanford, professor of physics called Andre Linder who wrote a leading textbook on something called inflationary cosmology. And he actually, in, in that book, he also says that, that he believes that consciousness may be something completely, completely fundamental and that we're, we're narrowing ourselves much too much as scientists by not considering that possibility that consciousness may be fundamental. And there's an interesting story that when he told his publish, when his publishers saw that he'd included that in his book, they said, you know, you might lose the respect of your, of your colleagues and readers if you leave that in the book. And he said, if I don't include it, I'll lose my self-respect because he could see that it's self-evident that consciousness is not just a, a string of ones and zeros. There's no way you can write it as a computer program and make something that will wake up and be aware and, and be someone rather than something. And that's the danger of, of people's, of the blindness that's leading us towards thinking about things like transhumanism, uploading and so on, is that if you, if you put a, a string of ones and zeros which are derived from your brain or from your connectome or whatever it is that they're, they're taking from, it's always going to be just information. It's never going to be you. That's not how you continue. But there is a way to continue. In fact, you have it naturally as a human being. And perhaps what the, we see on the shroud and what the evidence that is garnered from all the near-death experiences that people have and their perception of the light that they see in the near-death experiences of being all compassion and, and all wisdom is showing us how we could, a way to, of living in which we could achieve a natural continuation without, without technology. I don't want to get too far, too far, I don't want to get too far ahead because we will come back to that in this, in the second hour, but, um, I just want to drill down a little bit further on, uh, how mind can control matter. There's that classic example, of the, I believe it's called the, is it the double slit experiment? Indeed. Can you tell us a little bit about that in, in very sort of rudimentary terms? 
Sure. Well, basically, the double slit experiment is a is an experiment that that gets to the heart of the issues, the the apparent paradox of of quantum mechanics. Because basically, until you actually observe the electron or the photon, then it doesn't have an actual location. It's not a thing. It's it's all as as Heisenberg said. The quantum realm of atoms and so on is a world of possibilities, of potentialities rather than of of things or, or objects. And it's only when you actually observe it that you that you make it take on a, a fixed reality that's taken on as a result of that observation. And as as Eugene Wigner and several other people, including von Neumann, London, Bauer, the various other quantum physicists, and and more more latterly Andre Linder have have pointed out, is that at the end of the at the end of the chain of observation, it's not good enough just to have a machine that watches it because then the machine could both see it and not see it at the same time. You need to have a conscious observer because it's only in consciousness that we are never both things at once we never we never see that the electron is here but or at there at the same time it always whenever we see it somewhere it's always in in one place or or the other so in other words the the simple act of observing these subatomic particles changes their behavior well in, indeed in fact it can actually work through the it was something called the delayed choice experiment you can set up a, a scenario whereby how you observe something now can change the past of the thing that you're that you've observed or at least give it a past it's not only making the present real it's making the past real because until you uh, actually observe it then the history of where it was before you observed it is has not happened yet Oh my! It's, it's amazing. <laughs> that mm. is well. Then that brings us around to the subject of time being the, being the product of the mind, and therefore the mind. Uh, well, I'll get you to explain it because you're the expert here. But the the, the concept of uh, the notion of the present, the now, and how mm. that is a creation of the mind. Talk to me about yes. that. Again, I mean, I've, I've mentioned Schrödinger already, but this was a point that he made in his seminal work called uh, What is Life and Mind and Matter was the addendum to that. That um, basically, con- mind, consciousness is always now. That wh- whenever we are, we're always now. And people think, oh, but I have memories of the past and plans for the future. Yes, you do. And that where are those memories and plans? Well, they're now. You're experiencing them now, and we're always now. It says that the present is the only thing that has no end. That that mind is always now, and therefore, um, without the mind, there is no need for there to be a now. That the equations of physics that relate to uh, the material world, they describe it as though all of history and future are all there together, but it's only in consciousness, as, as uh, Professor Roger Penrose pointed out, it's only for for mind, for consciousness, that time needs to flow at all. There's no flow of time in a material system unless uh, the, the appearance of a flow of time is something that happens that happens within consciousness. So Schrodinger pointed out that time is a result of consciousness, and therefore that if that which consciousness has made 
cannot make consciousness. If we've made time, then time can't make us and time can't, time can't end us. So therefore he, he said, I, I propose the indestructibility of mind by time. Fantastic. And this is the point I make in the book that, that we act, that's the amazing thing as sentient beings is we have no beginning. So I don't, I don't suggest that we were created and I don't suggest in any way that, that we as sentient beings could ever be manufactured. I believe we are, that the universe has a beginning, but we don't, that even without physical universes, sentient being is there and that Physical universes are what happens when sentient being becomes limited and therefore separate so that we take on individuality. Space and time are just in other words for the, for the separation of points. And this is why I believe people like Jesus and the Buddha and Muhammad and all the other great teachers said that we should all love our neighbor as ourself, that we should, that there, that we should recognize that fundamentally there is no there is no separation except the separation that we have made and that's what by empathy compassion and so on the the way of living that that jesus for example demonstrated that might be the way that we might be able to return to be that light that people see in their death experiences which may be the same light that formed the image on the shroud all right we'll uh, take a time out and uh, dr andrew silverman stays with us in the next hour a burst of conscious light near-death experiences the shroud of turin and the limitless potential of humanity right here on the conspiracy show my name is richard Serrett. don't go away